Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Drugs, Addiction, and Recovery, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Emily Dufton, the host of this channel, and today we'll be talking to Joe Miller, author of the new book, U.S. of AA, How the Twelve Steps Hijacked the Science of Alcoholism. Miller is an award-winning journalist and an associate professor of English at Columbus State University in Georgia. His journalism has appeared in The New Republic, Salon, and Vibe, and his first book, Cross X, The Amazing True Story of how the most unlikely team from the most unlikely of places overcame staggering obstacles at home and school to challenge the debate community on race, power, and education, was selected as one of the best books of 2006 by the Chicago Tribune. U.S. of AA is his newest book. Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So glad you're here. So before we discuss U.S. of AA, I wonder if you could begin telling us a bit about yourself. Your first book, as we said, was about a debate team, which is quite a different subject. How did you switch from writing about debate teams to writing about the history of alcoholism and Alcoholics Anonymous? Well, there were a lot of failures in between. (laughs) Uh, I tried to, I I pursued a number of books, um, some of them quite far. I spent actually a whole year in a a church working on trying to get a book there. Um, Wow. No, just basically following threads, following um, uh, stories. Um, the, this actual project, it started out as a quasi-memoir. I was going to write about kind of recovering from recovery. Um, mm. But as I dug into it, I found that this history of, of um, America's understanding of alcoholism was really fascinating and make a great story in itself. So that was the one that, that stuck, huh? Well, yeah, it's, it's the one that... that um, came together. I, I mean, I pursued a bunch of stuff. First, I was going to just spend a year in a in an inner city Pentecostal church. You know, I did spend a year there. Wrote a whole proposal for that. Um, didn't get taken. Mm. And uh, I got sidetracked and helped this guy become mayor of Kansas City and worked for a while in the Kansas City mayor's office. And I was going to write about that. That one didn't quite come together. Um, and then I started. I actually in between there tried to write a teen young adult novel that didn't quite come together. Then I started writing this memoir. It was going to be called a year of living moderately. And I was going to talk about being moderation, um, management and, uh, and that following that thread, um, I, I, well, actually we did a whole, my agent and I did a whole proposal that was more heavily memoir based, um, initially, and that didn't get taken by anybody. So we reworked the proposal so that it was more of this history, mm-hmm. uh, which I think better. Well, that's still really fascinating because the the beginning of US of AA does involve a little bit of telling your own story. You know, so before we get into the nitty gritty of AA that you write about, I'd like to look at your larger project and you open your book with a very personal story. I guess that you've already sort of, you know, tried to work out from the memoir side about your own alcohol use and your own experience with AA. And it was fascinating. Um, so can you tell us a bit more about that? What was that like? What happened? Well, uh, when I was 20, um, I hit bottom, as it were, or as they say in AA. 
I was really down and drinking a lot, and, uh, smoked a lot of pot, um, and uh, got into AA and was in it for about eight years. And that first eight year stretch was, I was really devoted to the program. I worked the steps a number of times. Mm. Um, all my, my social group was, was AA for the most part. Um, but then when I got out of college and we all, the group started kind of drifting apart and then I got into the, the newspaper business and their alcohol is pretty central to the culture. Um, right. I started, uh, drinking a little bit again and then I, I eventually sort of fell back into my old patterns of getting really drunk on a pretty much daily basis and, and, uh, mm. didn't know what else to do. So I went back to AA and I did another about seven year run there. And, um, it just, uh, the more I kept going back, the less it seemed to make sense, the less the steps made sense to me. And, and, uh, and then, uh, uh, after a couple of three times of going through it, then I started finding out that there were different alternatives out there that I had never been made aware of before. One being moderation management, which worked so-so with me. Um, but the big breakthrough was um, uh, finding out about naltrexone. Mm-hmm. And uh, it didn't cure me, and it, isn't, it, uh, it doesn't work for everybody. But for me, I found that it sort of uh, I, I describe it as kind of punching a hole in my obsession for alcoholism. I would take a, a naltrexone before I went out to, before I would drink, and I would noticeably drink less. Just sort of, it was just odd. Like I'd kind of drink slower and take uh, drink water in between drinks and that sort of stuff. And that sort of like it just sort of broke the back of my compulsion um, and started me toward a gradual um, reduction. Can you tell listeners a little bit about what naltrexone is? Well, it's a, it's a drug that originally was developed um, to try and beat heroin addiction. Um, there was of- right. It's one of the only three FDA-approved uh, drugs to, to treat opioid use disorders. It's methadone, buprenorphine, and naltrexone. So it's fascinating that, all, that you were using it for alcohol. Right. Well, what happened was they, they developed it initially uh, during Vietnam because a lot of soldiers were using heroin over there and they were very concerned that people would come back um, addicted, which that's a whole other story because that showed that they came back and sort of just quit a lot of them. So it, it kind of broke some of the theories about how addiction works. Um, but uh, um, a scientist that, um, boy, I think Penn or one of the Ivy League schools uh, started experimenting with it for alcohol at, abuse um, and found that it could could reduce um, problem drinking. So uh, um, the drug manufacturer was given an extension on their patent and uh, uh, um, uh, given the incentive to develop it more in that direction. Um, and it was rolled out, but they sort of mishandled the marketing of it. Um, and it never really took hold. Uh, I think a lot of your listeners, if they were to go to their family practitioner and ask about it a lot. Uh, well, depending on what part of the country you're in, a lot wouldn't wouldn't even know about it. Mm. So it's it's a pill that you take uh, daily, or do you take it before you drink? Uh- yeah, there's a couple of different ways to do it. You can take it daily. Um, there's another th- a method called the Sinclair method, where if you take it before you drink, um, it it's shown to work for some people, where it'll make them drink less. And do you still um, use the drug? Do you still use naltrexone? No. Uh, no, um, it was just sort of a tool that helped me kind of over the, the hump a little bit. 
So that's fascinating. So you you did, I mean, you said you had an eight-year stint in AA, 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 excuse me, a seven-year stint. I mean, that's 15 years. You said you went back for a third time and you have numerous, uh, you know, decades of experience at this point with AA. And one of the things that you write about in your book that was particularly interesting to me was that, you know, the story of alcoholism is, I mean, you're hardly alone in this, right? You mentioned that an estimated 17 million Americans suffer from drinking disorders, which kill nearly 90,000 people every year year. Uh, This makes drinking the third leading cause of preventable death in the United States. And you also quote a journal that says that alcoholics receive poor quality care than patients with any other common chronic condition. So what's going on here, do you think? Why does alcoholism, which is such a prevalent condition, get treated so differently from other problems, from other diseases? That's a complicated question to, to answer. Um, well, first, I point out the journal that, that said that about, about alcoholism being the most poorly treated chronic condition. That was JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association. Um, mm-hmm. They did a, did a study and found that, that most people who suffer from it don't get any treatment at all. Um, wow. And, and uh, um, despite since the 90s, there have been um, uh, a number of different options to, to address it um, at the level of the, the, at the family doctor level. Why do I think it is? I think with the history of it basically shows if you're going to sort of boil it down to the essence of it, um, the medical community pretty much abdicated um, uh, any responsibility or the majority of its responsibility around alcoholism to AA. Um, mm. As AA developed in the mid 20th century, um, there were fewer options available, um, and it's it worked for um, a number. I mean, it worked for a lot of people. It worked anecdotally. AA worked really well, um, and doctors were, you know, understandably frustrated with um, with problem drinkers because you'd tell them again and again not to drink, and they would the same patterns would show up. So, um, kind of not knowing what else to do. Um, and and with the the relentless promotion of of AA um, in in American culture, um, the medical community just sort of said, "Well, that's that's solved. AA deals with that, um, and we don't have to mess with it." I guess that's sort of the nutshell of it. Hmm, that's really interesting that they they would abdicate their responsibility to an organization that essentially does it for free. I mean, I guess it's not. <laughs> A huge surprise uh, in a country that doesn't have uh, universal health care. It might be it might be the easier way. Well, that's the other part too. Yeah, it's free. It's readily available, um, and it's so self directed. You know, it's so self guided, right? You yeah. sort of allow the patient to you know cure thyself, right? Um, <laughs> so for for all the historians out there who love books that move chronologically, uh, which I, I definitely count myself among their number, uh, US of AA does exactly that. And you outline the history of alcoholism treatment from 1805, when it was first understood as an illness, to 1934, when the idea for AA began, to today. Um, can you give listeners a brief overview of alcoholism's origins as a treatable illness, where did doctors used to think it came from, and how was it treated in the time before AA? Wow, that's a big question to answer. I, my book doesn't focus on that <laughs> period as much. It really sort of starts um, in uh, post-prohibition, 1934, kind of when AA started. Um, uh, 
Well, <laughs> the the earliest um, uh, uh, instance of of it being called a disease that I found in my work was by Benjamin Rush, sort of the 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 doctor of the revolution, I guess, as you might call him. He was a, a signer of the Declaration of Independence and, and uh, um, a prominent doctor. And he wrote an essay about how alcoholism is, is a disease of, of um, the spirit. Um, and then uh, through, the, through the 19th century, um, I guess the term alcoholism was coined in the mid-19th century by uh, a doctor in Sweden. I forget his name. Um, but for the most part during that time, it was mostly seen as a moral failing, uh, a moral issue. And of course, there was a, a huge, uh, throughout the 19th century, a big push for prohibition, especially of, of um, hard liquor, um, uh, which there was a huge problem of uh, hard liquor in the early 19th century in this country um, as distilled spirits became more readily available. Um, so, but in that period, most of the, for the most part, it was dealt with um, through uh, the criminal justice system and then through uh, um, insane asylums, basically. Uh, uh, people who had problems with, real severe problems with drinking would be, you know, <clears throat> dealt with um, by the law or sent to, um, you know, what they used to call funny farms, or, you know, the state hospital. Um, and that really continued um, on through uh, the middle part of the 20th century, even as AA was was burgeoning. Um, <laughs> wow. And not not that dissimilar from today, which is still, you know, in many ways how we continue to treat uh, people suffering from addiction and use disorders. It's either the criminal justice system or uh, we don't necessarily put people into, uh, you know, uh, mental centers, funny farms or things like that. But it, it remains, you know, this idea of it being a moral failing remains mm -hmm. so prevalent. It's 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 hard to mm -hmm. shake, isn't yeah. it? And that was really what I mean, that was the the kind of novel breakthrough that AA brought, it started to kind of change that argument, the idea that it was a, a, a fault on the part of the user, um, that they were somehow morally flawed or ethically flawed or um, <clears throat> just couldn't control themselves into the idea that, that uh, there's something about them that makes them drink in this way and that, uh, that it's a, a, a medical condition. Well, these these ideas uh, start to have some impact, obviously. So from 1920 to 1933, uh, the prohibition idea that had been promoted throughout the uh, 19th century does finally take hold, and the U.S. government federally banned the sale, distribution, and use of alcohol. But eventually, the great experiment uh, came to a close, and AA forms just two years, I mean, the idea is there in 34, and then it officially forms in 35, just two years after federal prohibition ends. What impact or influence did prohibition have on Americans' drinking habits? You know, is it a coincidence that AA forms just as prohibition ends? No, that's a good question. I don't know. A coincidence? Um, yeah, I guess I would say it was a coincidence. I'm not sure that they were really thinking about it um, in those terms as they developed it. Um, but they do really kind of go hand in hand. And, and one of the things, I don't know if I explicitly said this in the book, but it's sort of one of the ideas that have developed as I worked on it. And that is that this whole, the way, as they call it, the modern alcoholism movement um, 
unfolded, it basically um, took the 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 guilt off of the drug. Um, you know, whereas before with the prohibition movement, um, it was this this evil poisonous drug that would that would you know destroy the lives of men and women. Um, uh, you ran a risk. If you read read materials from that time, it, it, they would they it, schools had materials in their textbooks that would say if you drink one drink, you you run the risk of of having your whole life fall apart um, from this. this wow. <laughs> and I think w- one thing that prohibition taught us is that we love to drink, um, and it's pretty much impossible that we're gonna keep people from drinking. Uh, by any law, basically the you know prohibition made criminals of non criminal people, so we love to drink, and um, this this alcoholism movement model shifted the blame of the problems of alcoholism to um, these people who suffer from a disease, and if we just focus on them and get them to not drink there 's no problem so in some ways, it sort of gave the drug alcoholism alcohol excuse me um, a free ride, um, which I think you know, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, that's what we want. You know, American um, humans love to drink. Um, uh, Americans love to drink. And uh, this this um, shifted the debate away from the dangerous drug. That's so fascinating. We, we cleared alcohol itself of blame and focused instead on the people who had a, a true disorder with it. Uh, so someone always has to be blamed or something always has to be blamed. But that shift uh, changed at the end of prohibition. And do you feel like that? Do you feel like uh, that blame is still situated on the people who have problems with drinking as opposed to alcohol itself? Is that still true? Um, yeah, I would say so. Absolutely. Yeah. Sure, um, I guess so. With like all the ads around and everything, so especially around around the holidays, my God, um, yeah. New Year's Eve coming up. <laughs> yeah. So what yeah. Uh, what I loved the most about US of AA was the story of the people that you focus on. There's there are some bios in this book that are incredibly compelling. It really it revolves around some really big characters whose impact influenced the entire trajectory of AA as an institution. Uh, can you tell us a bit about the origins of AA and who some of the biggest names in the early history of AA are? Okay, well, AA really it evolved out of a movement um, of between the wars. Um, uh, what is this group called? The Oxford Group. It was sort of a I guess they sort of fancied themselves as a supplement to other churches. Um, and uh, um, uh, they, it was a worldwide movement. Um, and among the groups that they targeted to, to, for growth was uh, alcoholics. And Bill Wilson was um, one of his old drinking buddies, um, got involved with the Oxford group and came to him and sort of, uh, um, uh, you know, told him, I'm not drinking anymore. I'm, I found God. And, and Bill Wilson started going to these meetings and, and it wasn't really working for him. He, he drank a lot. He'd sometimes go to these, the Oxford group meetings really drunk. <laughs> uh, but then uh, in the midst of that, he, he got checked into a couple of times into a, a really um, a, a kind of expensive and well-known at the time um, alcohol drying out center called the Towns Hospital, uh, run by this guy named Towns. I forget his first name. Um, But while he was in there, he had a doctor looking over him named Dr. William Silkworth, who uh, um, 
was not a particularly distinguished doctor. He went to Princeton, but uh, um, uh, he gravitated toward working with um, alcoholics in uh, this drunk tank, so to speak. And in the process, he developed this theory similar to what Benjamin Rush had talked about earlier, that, that the, there's some sort of um, you know psychological or emotional um, uh, disease within the person um, that compels them to drink in the way they, they do. And he categorized it as uh, an allergy. Hmm. So he told this to Bill Wilson, who um, uh, immediately it sort of it clicked for him. It was a mental way for him to, to come to terms with what he was dealing with. And, and it gave him this idea that, no, it's not because I'm a flawed person or anything like that. It's because I have this allergy or, or um, a disease within me that makes me drink in this way. And that, that sort of helped him to a certain extent. And then, but uh, he, he relapsed and went back to the hospital um, and there had this um, spiritual experience um, uh, that, that he claimed, you know, removed his desire to, to drink. Um, and what was that spiritual experience? Well, he just, he, you know, it's, it's in the big book. It's pretty well, well documented. He uh, um, sort of cried out to God in his anguish in the throes of DT. Oh, and also this, I guess I should say that this, this hospital, they had um, kind of a regimen of, of medicine, so to speak. And, and one of them was belladonna, which is a, a psychedelic drug. Right. And uh, so he was on that too. And, and, um, when he cried out to God, he said he felt this great cleansing wind pass through him, um, and his his uh, compulsion to drink was removed, and that kept him going for a while. But then he wound up as he got his life back together and, and started um, getting back into work. He had been a stockbroker before, um, had had really suffered through the the crash of twenty nine. He went out to Akron to to serve as a proxy for. Um, uh, a merger a company in New York was trying to buy out some company in, in Akron. And while he was there, he was lonely and he wanted to drink. So instead of drinking, he went to the, um, the church directory in the hotel and just started calling churches and, and wound up connecting with this, this guy named um, uh, Dr. Robert Smith, Bob Smith, Dr. Bob, who was a proctologist and um, just really in the throes of, terrible alcoholism, drinking every day, drinking before surgery, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Um, and uh, he went to talk to him and, and uh, they clicked and um, Bob, Dr. Bob had one slip. Um, but then when he stopped on June 10th, uh, 1935, that is called the uh, beginning of AA. And then from there they would have meetings in Akron. They'd go out and try and find drunks to get sober and, and it spread to Cleveland um, and pretty soon they had um, a pretty uh, little group group there. Uh, Smith uh, uh, Wilson went back to New York and started a group there, kind of out of his house, and it just grew from there. So it seems like it almost goes from um, the idea of alcoholism as being a moral failing to the cure for alcoholism being almost moral companionship, right? It, it seems like uh, Bill W. and Dr. Bob say that you can overcome drinking if you have a supportive group around you that holds you accountable and, and keeps you kind of straight, right? So, so how are these individuals viewing alcoholism and the alcoholic? And how do they incorporate that into what AA says about people who have alcohol use disorders? Well, I, I'm not sure that they would have said back then um, that it was necessarily the, the fellowship between the people um, hmm. suffering. I, that was an element of it. But the, the primary 
curative um, in the whole process was a complete spiritual uh, awakening, a complete spiritual change. Um, wow. So that that was really the that's the medicine um, in the process, which is hard to prescribe, right? So <laughs> I would say that that they didn't they okay um, as AA was 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 being developed um they didn't they saw it as an allergy um a sickness and that sort of thing um but they weren't really they knew or at least bill wilson knew that that wasn't a real medical um endorsement um uh, as they they as the group developed and they they wrote this this sort of central text for it they got dr silkworth to write his theory of of an allergy and that sort of thing um but uh they knew at least Wilson knew that they didn't have real um, uh, con- consensus from the medical community about what they were doing. And that comes up later because uh, um, the, the, the real person that's responsible for AA's growth is not Bill Wilson or Dr. Bob. It's a woman named Marty Mann, who was one of the first women to get sober uh, through AA, um, I believe in 39 um, and she was uh, a PR expert uh, even before she got into AA. She was uh, in the, the New York Magazine world, and uh, um, she started to become kind of an ambassador for AA in the New York area. She would go to different civic groups and talk about AA and that sort of stuff. And and she she had this vision over time of of how she could create this national network to help people to understand alcoholism as a disease. And to start dealing with it in a way other than uh, the criminal justice system and, and insane asylums and that sort of thing. There are some um, requirements. So oh, just to the loop here a little bit, when she first went to, doc, uh, to to Bill Wilson about the idea of starting this national network about that, he was doubtful because he didn't think that the scientific community would get behind the idea of it being a disease. Um, she proved him wrong. They, she got Yale to back that up. Uh, in short order, and that was really the foundation for her whole campaign that went from through the forties, fifties, sixties, seventies, and her, uh, you know, the group that she started is still in existence today. That's amazing. She was one of the most compelling characters uh, in, in the entire book. I really enjoyed learning about her because she's, <laughs> you, you know, she's essentially a closeted lesbian. She is a PR professional in an era when women are not seen as being, uh, you know, professionals in in many uh, public places, and she's also so outward about her own uh, process of recovery. And I think she's just she's just such an, a compelling person. But she also says that there's a lot of. Um, I don't know if I'd call them requirements, but perhaps they are that alcoholics need to kind of achieve before finding salvation in AA. So as you said, even in the beginning of our interview, there's, there's requirement that one has to hit rock bottom and experience this hopelessness and then go through this spiritual transformation and really uh, give one's life to uh, God as they understand, uh, as they understand God. That's really interesting. Why, why do you think that, Marty Mann and Bill W. and Dr. Bob sort of created uh, uh, an entire organization that demanded these things that simply don't impact the treatment of other illnesses. Uh, is it because they work? Um, well, I think in their sort of skewed view of things, yes, it worked that way. I think what where it came out of was that 
I mean, despite the successes that they bragged about in those early days, there was really more failure than there was success, which is pretty much in line with, with the difficulty of treating the disease. There's a lot of setbacks and it takes a while to get going. So um, their experience was for themselves and for the other people that they saw around them that it was working for, that that people really had to get to a place where they just were at rock bottom, their lives, they just can't go on anymore with drinking um, until they're ready to, to, to take the cure. And the cure is you know, God and absolute abstinence. So, um, and this is, this is really, it's an important question that you ask because I think it's the, it gets to the root of the problem of America having as its de facto treatment policy for alcoholism, this, this model. And that is, you know, that this, it's prevalent, this idea that if you're an alcoholic, you just basically just, you know, you have no choice but to keep drinking until, until near death, until you're ready to get sober. And as science has progressed um, apace with, with this, you know, um, we've seen that that's just not true. There are ways that you can reduce the harm that you're inflicting upon yourself before that. Um, so, and there are studies too that show that if you believe that, that it, you know, your only way of, of drinking is to drink, um, to extreme excess, you're more likely to do to do that. So um, the belief itself, the prevalence of the belief itself, um, can lead to more 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 uh, hurtful, harmful behavior. Hmm, that's fascinating. The the, the um, mental component of of this that has just been sort of reiterated, although shifting and evolving over and over since Benjamin Rush's time, is is uh, really compelling. Yeah, let me give you another, just to kind of underscore that, you know, just to give an example of that, that there still is no real consensus in the medical community about what exactly it is, what kind of disease it is, and that sort of thing. And one of the better examples I've found is that um, in the course of my interviewing with different people, I interviewed uh, this guy named Peter Monti, who's the director of, of one of the one of several alcoholism um, research centers uh, around the country at Brown. And I asked him, well, what is alcoholism? And he said, it's a, um, it's a learned behavior. Um, uh, it's a conditioned response. Um, and then later, uh, a month or so later, I interviewed one of his former um, students, uh, grad students, who now runs a lab for the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse, NIAAA. Um, you know, he said it's absolutely a disease, you know, so it's like, hmm. there's just not, there's no consensus. And then when I yeah. to the director of the NIAAA, uh, Dr. George Koob, and, and presented both their sides, he said, well, it's both. <laughs> um, <laughs> Why decide? So, well, we'll have them both. Yes, of course. <laughs> well, I think what it comes down to is that really, the, I think the best way to explain it is that it's not a singular ailment. It's not a singular disorder. It's a range of things in the same way that, that uh, um, depression or anxiety or mental, mental health issues are. There, there's a range of the ways that it manifests, and there's likewise a range of ways to approach it and to treat it. Right. That's fascinating. 
But ultimately, AA and the 12 steps kind of come to dominate um, the recovery field, as you've said. So what happened to AA over the course of the 20th century? I mean, you're saying that in the beginning in, in Akron, it's this struggling little organization. And then, of course, Marty Mann uh, does quite a bit to promote it, but it has grown into one of the most powerful influencers on the field of American alcohol treatment. How did this happen? Um. A number of ways. I, for the most, uh, the I think the biggest is one press. Um, Marty Mann's uh, efforts in the press to get the whole country to understand alcoholism the way she understood it. Um, preceding that, though, was uh, uh, an article in the Saturday Evening Post, which was uh, instrumental in in AA's early growth, um, and that was one that was completely pursued by Bill Wilson and, and a couple other New York members of of the group. Um, and then uh, again, I lost track of the last part of your question. Well, how did um, how did it basically go from this little struggling organization into the, one of the most powerful influencers on the field of American alcohol treatment? Well, as the American alcohol the American alcoholism movement, as they call it, uh, which is this whole sort of history that AA is a part of, um, the four the the people who were active in it and really pushing it. At all levels, from uh, you know community level with with community like county health organizations and that sort of thing, or hospitals, um, a local level with uh, employers, manufacturing and that sort of stuff, uh, they were all directed by people who were in AA or uh, in some way connected to people in AA. They were people who were believers in AA, and they were pushing. They knew all along they were pushing AA is the way to get out of you know to help with this. Um, and then from from the local level up to the state governments, to the federal level, to the point where we had federal legislation um, unanimously passed in the late 60s that created the National Institute of – I always get the acronym a little bit mixed up. It's either alcohol and alcohol abuse or uh, or the other way around, <laughs> NIAAA. <laughs> um, so it, it, was, it was believers who were pushing it. Um, and then the other, other part of it too is that a lot of creatives, you know, are have problems with drinking, and uh, so journalists were in AA. Um, you know, so newsrooms had people that were in AA, and that you know, that's just sort of it became a <clears throat> common understanding in media, and then of course in movies. Um, uh, you know, it's only until. It, it's only been recently that, that if you watch a movie or a TV show, there might be some sort of alternative um, portrayal of an alcoholic. Um, but prior to maybe the, you know, the, the turn of the millennium, you know, pretty much all the, if you have a recovering, someone who's dealt with alcoholism in a movie, they're, they're going to follow the Marty Mann model. The, the power, the media power and the media control of this narrative is is fascinating. I mean, I, you just I don't quite see that with other diseases or other disorders. That is a, that is a lot of power to be able to control the narrative in so many ways about the treatment industry. Um, but one of the things I'm, you know, I, I think people will be really interested in is that your subtitle is important. It's how the 12 steps hijacked the science of alcoholism. And, uh, you know, I guess briefly, actually, what we should do is uh, if you could describe the 12 steps and what they are and why they are so integral to AA, but also then if you could talk a little bit about what the science of alcoholism is and how it was hijacked by these 12 steps. Well, the 12 steps are, um, 
or a, a set of steps that you can take to spirit that that they prescribe to spiritually change yourself to um, get away from alcoholism. And do you have um, to go through them in order? Um, yeah. Well, you know, I, yeah, I think that's the way it's. I'm hesitating because it's like what the process is. You get into AA, you find a sponsor, and then the sponsor takes you through the twelve steps the way that they did it. Um, and generally, yeah, they're in order. Um, but there's there, there's sort of like three sections in the twelve steps. The first are about admitting your problem and accepting it. The second are kind of action steps where you look at your your life and all the wreckage that you've done in your life and you address that and fix it and that sort of thing. And then the the last part, the last few steps are uh, ongoing maintenance steps of meditation, prayer, helping others. Um, so you can kind of get into those latter steps just as a part of sort of daily living in AA and that sort of thing. Um, how did they, what was the oh, other How did they um, hijack the science of alcoholism and what is the science okay, of alcoholism? Okay. Uh, the second part is going to be harder for me to answer. Um, the, <clears throat> the first part, the way they hijacked it was basically um, coming out of the prohibition. Uh, there was a significant population in the scientific community uh, leaders, uh, the, the AAAS, American Association of a, the big, the big science organization. Um, this is a part you might need to fix in, in post. Um, um, coming out of prohibition, there was concern in the scientific community. There was concern in the, in the country that we might go back to prohibition, that there were a lot of problems that with the, with repeal that were, were occurring. And so, um, Scientists wanted to propose a way to study alcoholism and alcohol as a way to kind of develop sensible, sensible policies around it. Um, but what they found was that they couldn't get any money really doing it. Um, uh, the big foundations um, were, were uh, reluctant to get involved with the issue because it was still really hot. It was still tense, a difficult debate in the country. Um, so they just didn't want to touch it. Um, and, uh, there was no real government money yet available for it because there weren't any alcoholism, uh, agencies and that sort of thing. The only money that they could really find <clears throat> for the most part was from, uh, liquor companies themselves, um, who, who were interested in it. Um, so early on, they actually, the, the AAAS created a subset to deal with alcoholism, um, Boy, now I'm at a loss for what it's, it's something like the, the National Committee for Problems on Alcoholism, NCPA, I think it is. Um, and they, they were in operation for several years, uh, really struggled with their budget. Um, and then finally they were offered to get money from al alcohol companies. And um, they, at a meeting, very explicitly decided, okay, if we're going to take alcohol money, we can't study alcohol. We can only study alcoholism. But at the time, and still today, there was no, there, there's no real meaning to that. Like, it's just a made-up term. And they knew it. You can see it in the meetings of this, in the minutes of this meeting, that they knew that they were dealing with something that they didn't, that didn't even exist. But um, that was the way to get money to do the research that they wanted. A top scientist from Yale, real popular one. He, he was kind of a, a popular scientist. He would write these books 
these kind of pop culture science books and 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 appear in the New York Times with with you know radical ideas like giving <clears throat> giving candy to your kids is good and that sort of stuff. Um, and he, he became disenchanted with this NCPA uh, when they started looking at alcoholism money. So he took a scientist from that group over to Yale, and he he had established. Um, where he had established a school on alcohol. Um, he was a physiologist uh, by, by uh, um, uh, discipline. And um, that group, they would have a summer uh, school on alcohol, and they would bring in people from both sides of the, the prohibition argument, um, public, public health officials, and just teach them different things about alcohol. And it was very much focused on the drug of alcohol and alcoholism or alcohol problems were just sort of a subset of it. So while that was going, Marty Mann came up with her idea for having this national network that would, you know, PR campaign that would get us all to, to look at alcoholism the way he, she saw it. She approached Yale um, and this other scientist named Elvin Jelenic um, immediately seized on it and said, this is going to be our ticket. If we push this, get this idea of, you know, get America to change its views about alcoholism, then we can start having the money we need to do the research. And that's exactly how it played out. It was, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, <clears throat> it didn't necessarily work out for Yale specifically, but over time with her campaign, it, it, um, it, 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 snowballed with its resources and uh, uh, first of all with a, a top level philanthropist uh, joined um, the group um, and and started uh, devoting some of his uh, foundation money toward it and then of course culminating with the the passage of the Harold Hughes Act the Hughes Act in 1969 that established the NIAAA and made available tens of millions of hundreds of millions of dollars uh, for research in alcohol alcohol and alcoholism, which in turn has shown us that AA is not the uh, cure-all that it claims to be. Um, it works for some, but uh, the research has shown us that alcoholism is, like I said, a, a complex, um, a varied uh, disorder that requires uh, a range of treatments. Absolutely. I'm really interested in your sources and your archives. Um, how did you research this book? Because you're, I mean, you're you're telling this really fascinating story, and there's all these people involved. I'd love to know how you found out this history. Uh, where did you, where did you go? What did you do? Who'd you talk to? Well, it's sort of out there. Um, it's never been really written about in the way that I wrote about it as a story uh, for popular consumption. Uh, but my biggest guides were a couple of PhD dissertations. Uh, and a book, um, a kind of a, a more of a textbook history of, uh, of treatment in America going back to the 1700s. Um, that book was called Slaying the Dragon by William White. Um, and the dissertations were by a guy named Ron Roizen, um, uh, who did a dissertation, I want to say at Stanford, um, about the the, what I just told you, this whole story about the scientific sleight of hand, you know, where the scientists sort of sold out their science for this, this uh, um, layperson um, grassroots uh, uh, group. Um, he focused on that. And then this other person named um, Robin Room, I believe, I hope I'm getting that right, who did uh, the later kind of history of it. So that was kind of my 
my outline, so to speak. Um, and from there, the most valuable places that I went that, that I went for for information were Marty Mann has um, archives at Syracuse University. Uh, I spent a week going through those. Um, there are more archives from her organization uh, at Brown. I spent a week going through those. Um, AA actually has a lot of uh, its um, materials online, um, certainly with their their published materials, the, the newsletters and, and um, journals and that sort of thing. I also got to spend a week in Lyndon Johnson's um, uh, archives in Austin. Uh, he was the, the first president to um, call alcoholism a disease. Uh, he did it in a, a speech to, uh, to Congress, to jo- a joint speech to, to both houses of Congress. And, uh, and his work really sort of laid the foundation for what would become um, the law that was ultimately passed under Nixon with great resentment and reluctance by Nixon. Um, uh, so those Which were... Which law is this? Well, it's called the... Oh, boy, the... Rec- it's got a long name, like the National Recovery Alcoholism and Alcohol Recovery Act or whatever, but its uh, shorthand name is the Hughes Act after its sponsor, a senator named Harold, Howard, Harold Hughes. So how has the response to your book been? I mean, I know AA is pretty protective of its image. Um, have you received any blowback or have people been inspired by knowing the true story? Um, it's, I have to, I'll be completely honest with you. I'm kind of disappointed with the response. I, um, hmm. The response has been pretty polemic just along already divided lines. Hmm. Um, and I think the biggest disappointment is that um, I didn't get any, nobody really reviewed it. I got um, a review from a, a, a psychological journal or a neurobiological journal, um, and then a couple other smaller reviews, but none, I didn't get any of the pre-publication reviews of Publishers Weekly, uh, um, uh, oh, I forget what that other one is, Kirkus, Kirkus, yeah. or, mm-hmm. or, or Library Journal, um, no New York Times, none of that. Hmm. So, um, do you blame? Do you blame the prominence of AA? Do you feel like their uh, Marty Mann's ghost is still sort of haunting, <laughs> haunting, haunting the PR field and keeping you at bay? I think so too. I think also you had asked me. You sort of circled in on that word hijacked, and uh, that wasn't the original subtitle. That's one that we came up with in the editors, and when it when they first presented it, I was really excited. I thought, well, that's a really impactful subtitle. But part of me wonders if it didn't sort of, because there's already quite a bit of polemic stuff out there. And I think it was, I, I, I kind of, it might have labeled me as a polemic. Um, so I, I guess the ultimate lesson is that it's hard to change history. It's hard to rewrite history. And, uh, you know, that that history is pretty well embedded. And, and I think, um you know, with so many different books coming across different people's desks, um, my guess is that they sort of took a glance at this and saw, well, this is another climate. Um, I know. You should have written, you sh- your name should be Tara Westover. You should have written uh, Educated, and you would be still on the New York Times bestseller list 94 weeks after publication. <laughs> Don't we all wish we had written that book, you well, know? 
Uh, well, Joe, we've taken up a lot of your time and I want to thank you so much for talking with us because this book is fascinating and I think it deserves more readers because we, we should know about this fascinating component of history uh, as far as alcohol and alcoholism are concerned. Uh, but before we let you go, you had mentioned that you're working on something new. I'd love to know what your next project will be. What are you working on next? Well, I'm, I'm in it. Um, I'm doing research on a couple of avant-garde filmmakers who were my former professors at uh, the University of Colorado. So uh, Stan Brackage and Phil Solomon. Uh, um, been going to Colorado looking through uh, Brackage's archives. And then I interviewed Solomon about seven or so times before he passed away earlier this year. So you went from uh, a debate team to uh, AA and alcoholism, and now into avant-garde films. You are you are a true uh, <laughs> a true a true master of many subjects, and I, I'm very excited about your next project. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, that, and I appreciate you reaching out to me too. Oh, well, it, it was so much fun to talk to you. I really want to thank you for being on this show today. I really enjoyed it. And I wish you the best of luck with your next project. Likewise. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, Joe. Bye-bye.